From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. He was 17 before he'd read a novel cover to cover. Now New York Times bestselling author Jason Reynolds hopes to make reading a little cooler for kids inspired by hip-hop and real-world issues. His books connect to the complexities of young adult lives, and he's found critical acclaim for his work, winning an NAACP Award for Outstanding Literary Work. He was also a National Book Award finalist for his novel, Ghost. Jason Reynolds is on tour for his newest book, Look Both Ways, A Tale Told in Ten Blocks. He's going to be speaking about it tomorrow night at Holy Trinity Episcopal Parish in Decatur for the Little Shop of Stories, sponsoring the event. We caught up with Reynolds during his last book tour, and I asked him about that book that first inspired him at age 17. The first book was uh, was Black Boy by Richard Wright. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where our teacher's kind of like, hey, read the first five pages, and if you don't like it, you can close it up. Uh, of course, on the second page of the book, the main character burns his mother's house down. He sets the curtains on fire and 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 basically burns the house down. And for so he had person, you. <laughs> exactly. That was it, right? It's like, oh, this is amazing. I'm all in, you know. So I also read that you were reading poetry when you were a kid. Poetry? I loved poetry. I thought. I thought. Um, but before poetry, it was it was rap lyrics. I would read the the liner notes of of cassette tapes of my favorite rappers, you know, Queen Latifah and Tupac and Slick Rick and all these these genius, these teenage geniuses, you know. And I'm reading their rap lyrics, and I'm realizing that there's a direct correlation between what they're doing and the poetry that we're learning in school. That this is poetry too, and that was sort of the entree into um, the world of poetry. But I loved it. I loved it. Nikki Giovanni and Langston Hughes and all of the sort of poets of um, of the black tradition. So were your friends reading poetry too? No. <laughs> Would you tell them that you were? Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. I didn't, you know, I, I was fortunate to grow up around uh, a bunch of guys that I, that I, I love dearly and that kind of respected whatever it is we all chose to do. It's kind of, we're all very different. Um, so they were okay, but they didn't understand it, that's for sure. But they were like, all right, Jay's, Jay's doing whatever Jay does, you know. Well, you grew up in D.C. in the 1980s. This is a time of big social changes, big hair, and big social problems. What was it like for you? I mean, you know, I think it's one of those things where you, when you're a kid, you don't always understand everything, right? If you go to your grandma's house in, in northeast D.C. and your cousins are there, you don't know why people are acting the way they're they're acting until you're a little bit older. But then you realize that there was, you know, you have to deal with the crack epidemic or my next door neighbor who um, unfortunately died of HIV or my friend's uncle who died of, who died of AIDS. Um, we were around it all the time. And then you also had rap music, right? It was everywhere. This this new music that all of us had grabbed the hold of, uh, it was a big deal. Um, but these are the things that were happening. And these are the things I would have loved to have seen in books just mm. because they they were familiar. You know? Well, right. And you were hearing these things reflected in hip hop, maybe, but not necessarily in books. No, not in books. I mean, when you if you were raised in the 1980s and in the early 1990s, all of the books that you were reading were pretty much based in the 1970s and the 1960s. Um, what would have been helpful is if we had hyper contemporary work, works that were uh, that, that, that not just reflected our realities, but also that were that was written with our um with our linguistic texture, right? I needed to hear my voice. Uh, I needed to hear the details of my language on the, on, uh, in the stories, and that wasn't a thing at the time. So you didn't have those books at that time. Who would you say is your target audience now? My target audience, uh, the, you know, if you are eight years old, 
all the way up to 25, you're my target audience. But also anybody, I, you know, I try not to limit it. I think we all could use um, a good story. I think we all could use uh, a conduit to empathy and a conduit to understanding. And that doesn't have an age limit on it. But for young people, I want them to know that they're valuable. And so in order to do that, I try to create works that reflect their realities as they are living them. Um, so that if you feel alone in the space in which you reside, you know you need not feel alone because these books can serve as reminders that it's not just you. Well, if you're looking at, a, you know, classical YA audience, you've got the sort of tweens and, as you said, up to 25. But a lot of them focused on middle school kids. This is a time of life that a lot of us want to forget. Why did you decide you wanted to write for that audience? I think I think those young people are at the fork in the road. I think they are at sort of this interesting precipice and what happens to them in seventh and eighth grade, sixth, seventh and eighth grade could affect their lives forever. It doesn't have to, right? They don't have to necessarily cling to whatever story is given to them at, at 12 years old, but it does matter um, that at that age, as they start to form opinions about the world around them, that there's something there to remind them that their opinions are valid, mm-hmm. right? And that their experiences are valid and valuable and that they're not half formed things, right? They are whole people, just young, but they're whole people moving through the world at 11 years old. And we have to honor that. Yeah. And the, uh, what I see in them is this kind of awareness of self or dawning awareness of self and trying to balance that with the rest of the world. And something that I see running through your books, expectations, expectations that parents have, that communities have either low or high. I'm thinking especially of Sonny, because I just read that uh, his dad wants him to be a marathon runner. He wants to be a dancer. How does he navigate that? He's he's his his navigation through it is complicated because this is his father and young people feel this way all the time, that there are things that they that they perhaps want to do that their parents don't necessarily see as viable, right? Or, or see, um, as real or as authentic or as, as safe. Um, uh, and also we have to remember that adults, we have our own baggage and we bring that baggage to every space that we step into, even when it comes to the raising and the rendering of our children, right? Like when we are raising our kids, that doesn't mean that we shirk off our own baggage before we begin that process. And so what you see in Sonny is his father uh, projecting and his father not being able to deal with his own pain. And so Sonny has to bear that weight until Sonny decides not to. And he just, he just says to himself, look, this is what I want to do. And I have to make this decision for me. Um, I can't live for my parents anymore. And I, and I, and I, and I know that that's really hard in real life, but that's the reason why I put it in a book so that young people know that at some point you may have to make that decision. You're listening to my earlier conversation with author Jason Reynolds. He'll be at Atlanta's Holy Trinity Episcopal Parish in Decatur tomorrow night. Well, Sonny is also the child of privilege. So this bucks against, you know, this kind of idea of, uh, you know, being raised in an underserved community as an African-American young boy. Why did you bring that in? Why was that important to you in this book? Because I think that there's, there's always such our experiences have been whittled down to a sliver when really we aren't monolithic people. We are polylithic. We are polylithic people um, with multiple uh, slivers of culture. And all of us, you know, it, it, we all share certain things, but we also, um, there are a lot of things that we don't share. And, and Sunny is real, right? The reality is there are a lot of 
black kids who are wealthy, black kids who are privileged and who are resourced, that's a reality. And we never get to hear that story. Does that mean that their lives are better? Perhaps in certain ways their lives are made easier. But there are other issues that come into play that that still affect them and that still sort of um, have to be worked through. The other thing is that I think that the black child has to be able to be all the things. When we talk about freedom and liberty and all these things that we sort of tout all the time in our country, what we don't always talk about is how the, the what freedom actually is, is the ability to be whatever it is that I want to be, even if that means not being the coolest kid in school. The black kid is always seen as either the toughest kid or the coolest kid. Hmm. But the truth is, is that black kids can be weirdos, too. They can be counterculture and misfits, too. A lot of YA books, you get, you know, not that range, but you get the post-apocalyptic kind of fantasy book. You know, I'm thinking of The Hunger Games as yeah. stamping it. Do, do you ever get tempted to try that route? Uh, not really, no. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, it, it, it's curious. I'm, I'm curious about it. But I, um, one, I don't know if I, my, my, my colleagues who do that, I have most respect for them. There's a certain level of, of imagination one must have that I'm not sure that I have yet. And two, I, I don't know if I can suspend reality in that way. I think that the world we live in is um, is magical enough. I, I just think we have to pay attention to it in a different way. You talked about hip-hop as one of those pillars, one of your inspirations. And how do you translate that into books, into reading? I think a few ways. Number one is language. I think that the beauty of being raised at the uh, the boon of the hip-hop era, the boon of hip-hop culture, is that when hip-hop evolved, it, it, it over time became, um, it basically just became youth culture around the world, which started out as, as, as a segment of black culture, specifically urban black culture, uh, grew up and became worldwide culture of all young people on earth. And so the beauty of that is that language is the language I naturally speak. So I have an in. It's like a, it's like having a golden ticket into into young people's sort of psyches. Uh, and so the first thing is language. I try to be honest with language and fool around and play around and be playful and loose with language on the page because that's the way that we speak. We're, we're not robots. We're not, you know, I don't speak as a poet. I speak as a person. <laughs> and I think I want to put that on the page. The second thing is rhythm. Those books, if you read them aloud, they're written with a certain kind of rhythm. And I don't know, um, and it just comes naturally to me because that's the way I was introduced to literature was through rhythm, was through music. Um, by the way, that's how we all are introduced to literature. I mean, right. we learn the, the alphabet. Da -da 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 -da. Right. right, with the alphabet song, right? We, we all learn everything we learn about literature or about language or about phonics. We learn through song, we learn through rhythm, we learn through nursery rhyme and all these other things. So it's natural. Um, for me to take what I learned from hip hop and to transfer that into the page. Well, rhythm, of course, is the language of poetry. And you, your most recent book, uh, For Everyone, is written as a poem. And after, you know, being recognized with huge awards, your most recent book, For Everyone, is about the pain of not hitting it out of the park. <laughs> it's, it's a real departure. What, what has the response been from readers used to your YA fiction? It's it's surprisingly it's been it's been overwhelming. I um I wrote for everyone when I was twenty four, and when I was quitting and felt defeated and um, wasn't certain that there was space for me in the literary world. And this was sort of my way of licking my wounds. This was the only way I knew how to communicate to myself. This this medium, this art form that I studied and sort of 
cleaved to for 20 years at that point, um, I needed more than ever because I felt defeated. And so I started writing for everyone. It took three years. And over the course of that three years, it, uh, it went from a licking of the wounds to more of um, a better understanding of what the process is and what the journey is. Um, but instead of writing a, a journey is the destination book, it's more about saying, look, I don't have any answers because I don't know. I have the same problems that you have. Um, I don't know how to make this thing happen. I don't know how to find success. I wish I could one plus one it for you. But the truth is, is that I am not an expert on life. Um, what I do know is that you aren't alone. What I do know is how it feels to want something, uh, to want something better than breathing. I know, I know what that feels like. Uh, and that's sort of where for everyone came from. It's kind of weird to read it and to see it out in the world because I wrote it 10 years ago mm-hmm. and we didn't, and we didn't edit it. We just kind of left it as is as my 24 year old voice and put that into the world. And so it's kind of cool that people like it, but it's kind of cringy for me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so Jason, I mean, if you had a magic wand, what would you change about how literature is taught in schools today? I don't believe, and this is, I've been thinking about this a lot lately and I haven't, so forgive me, I haven't quite fleshed it all out, but I, I do want to sort of pose this. I don't, if, if language is a living thing, right, which we all can agree on, language is living, it is changing, and it is evolving, just as human beings are living, changing, and evolving, then we should not be reading the same books um, after a certain amount of time. There needs to be, like, waves have to go in and out. I don't want, like, as much as I love Sunny and all of the books that I've been able to write, if 40 years from now they're being taught in schools, I failed. Hmm. I failed, right? The truth is, is that I don't, I, 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 the idea of timelessness is interesting because I want to write something that's really timely, really now, like right now. And I want it to work to affect change right now. And if, and if that means that I sacrifice the timelessness of that book, I'm actually pretty, I'm okay with that. New York Times bestselling author Jason Reynolds. His new book is called Look Both Ways, A Tale Told in Ten Blocks. You can hear him talk about it tomorrow night at Holy Trinity Episcopal Parish in Decatur. The event is sponsored by Little Shop of Stories. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. After 30 years and five nominations, renowned director and producer Spike Lee won his first Oscar this year for Best Adapted Screenplay for Black Klansmen. Well, Morehouse College will celebrate Lee, a 1979 graduate, at its first ever film festival this weekend. Like other film festivals, the three-day event will host premiere screenings of documentaries, features, and shorts, along with panels and talks focused on film as expression of civil and human rights as a vehicle for social change. I'm joined by Kara Walker. She's Morehouse Festival director. And Kara, hello. Hi. Welcome. Thank you. So Two much of the featured filmmakers are also with us. Egypt Robinson. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. How are you? <laughs> Phenomenal. And Kors Vandiver. Hello. Hi. How are you? Doing well. Well, you must be excited. This is a big festival. I'm very excited. Kara, this is the first ever Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival. Who are you hoping to attract? Who who will come to this festival? So filmmakers who would use their craft as activism. Mm-hmm. So whenever there's a, a cross-section or intersection of art and activism, then I think it it also brings about understanding of certain issues that we wouldn't ordinarily be exposed to. So I'm wondering for you, too, as filmmakers, do you think of yourself as activist filmmakers? I do now. I didn't always. What was was the conversion? (laughs) The films that I'm making and the things that were uh, 
tied to my to my heart and to to my spirit and the, the core of what I want to present as a filmmaker uh, definitely enlightened me in terms of you're, you're an activist. And so I started to uh, push a term that I didn't coin, but I pushed this term artivism. Huh, mm. artivism. And so artivism is what I like to, to call. In fact, I'll be teaching a short filmmaking course uh, at the Morehouse Human Rights Film Festival. Uh, on on the art of artivism. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit because you two of your films made the cut for this yes, festival. So congratulations, Fate and Lou. And yeah. Lou is just L U, by the way, for yes. people who do see the title. Let's start with the most recent Lou. And mm-hmm. um, it's played the the main character is played by Nate Parker. He's yes. a Marine with PTSD diagnosis after fighting in Iraq. We meet him in this darkened room. The shades are drawn. He's you know kind of playing with a gun. It's mm-hmm. pretty. And this is based on a true story. How'd you come across this story? I actually had read a story in The New Yorker and I read about uh, the real Lou. And so I decided to reach out to him. And when I contacted him via Facebook, much like uh, the character Lou. In, in the, yeah, in the he book. connects with somebody that uh, let's, yes. I'll leave the secret, but a long lost person <laughs> that he really needs to connect Correct. with on Facebook. <laughs> and Lou said, hey, a lot of big companies have big studios reached out to me. Uh, you're nice. <laughs> he's like, you're a nice guy. And I, I want to do this film with you. I don't care what the budget is or how small he's like, it's just something about you. And so he allowed us to tell his story. In fact, Lou is also white. And so And in the it, character the character who plays him is an African American actor. Correct. Correct. And so he didn't have a problem with that. I showed him Nate's work and uh yeah, I mean once we, we had this opportunity he was he, he said, Yes, I want Nate to do this and we jumped on it. Well, while you're speaking of Nate Parker, he is also the director of uh, the film American Skin, which is making its premiere at the film festival this weekend. Let's hear just a clip from the film. There's a scene when Lou is talking with his sister. She, by the way, is also a soldier. I'm not sure if it's a Marine, but she has told him she's just signed up for another deployment. Here's a clip. How you do it? I give it away. I give it all up to God. Prayer is what gets me through. You still praying? get that Iraqi lady out of my head. Every time I close my eyes, every time I try to go to sleep, it's the same thing. I wake up feeling like I'm still there. Like the whole thing just happened just five minutes before. I see the blood. I see that lady screaming. We Christian, we Christian. We Christian. Why you shoot us? Yeah, it's such a... Powerful moment. But you also, when you're doing this, something like this, you're telling a true story, but you are also making a film. Mm-hmm. So you can tell the story without all the facts. Obviously, yeah. you can't tell this whole entire story. That, you know, it was pages and pages of a New Yorker oh. uh, article. So when do you decide to to stick with the absolute truth and when without? I mean, it, this is, filmmaking is, is interesting, but it, it particularly we had made this film for a festival called 168, which is an international film festival, and also had like a face faith-based narrative and when we did that we just knew going in we wanted to do this nate wanted to express his faith he hadn't been able to do that um and so i knew this festival i I placed in this festival before but this year was a million dollar grand prize that particular year and we were like let's go for it Mm -hmm. and uh with that we had restraints you had 10 minutes 
You could only make a film in 10 minutes. You could only make it in 168 hours. So we couldn't write. We had to write, like, cast. Direct, like, everything had to happen in 168 hours. Wow. So that film was made in less than 168 hours. Mm -hmm. And we we did, literally, I, we shot. It was two days and 15 minutes. And that's because Omari Hardwick flew in from Miami uh, <laughs> in a, on a red eye to, to make his scene. Um, so Nate and, and Omar are actually not together in that film. We, we, when you see them in the room together, they're not actually together. This wow. is the magic of movies. <laughs> but it's also the magic of movie makers and the sort of improvisational nature of it. And Egypt, your mm -hmm. film, Tranquil Inferno, based on real history, as we said, is the 1921 riots that destroyed what was known at the time as Black Wall Street. This right. is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. First, give us a little background on the story. So the, the story of Tulsa, Oklahoma, the one that the avenue I took was just setting up how did this happen, right? How did one young lady come up with the idea to scream in the elevator or say I've been raped or say I've been touched? That's that part's always been a little blurry over the years. And then how did that one thing incite such an amazing amount of hate and bloodshed? Because that's literally the spark. That was just one little thing that killed so many people. And I wanted to humanize that moment. I wanted people to see where did it come from? What else was attached to that moment to make people so volatile that they would want to do what eventually that they did? I mean, they killed so many people. This is a two-day riot. Right, right. Basically, mobs, roving mobs. Right, Attacked right. black businesses, um, people of color. Killed doctors. Killed, you it know. It didn't matter. Children, women, it didn't matter. And burned buildings. Right, and there's like an ominous feel to this moment in history where these African-American business owners were literally doing everything that America says you should do. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, love one another, be Christian, be this, be that. And they were doing it. But that didn't matter. I'm speaking with the filmmaker who made that film, Egypt Robinson, also with us, Kors Vandiver. He was also featured at the first ever Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival in Atlanta taking place this weekend. The festival director, Kara Walker, is also with us. So, Kara, we just learned about a couple of the films that are highlighting true events in histories. What are other producers and directors bringing to this festival? So there are a variety of topics that are being screened through the films at the festival next week. Um, we're, there's one filmmaker who has submitted a film called Grid Shock about uh, sex human trafficking in Iowa. Wow. Mm. Um, there is a film about a young African-American male who, in this film, he is actually target practice. Mm. And so it's about the idea of African-American males growing up to be target practice. Wow. Um, Shoot. There is a film about voter suppression in North Carolina called Capturing the Flag. The filmmakers will be there uh, to discuss the, the, what happened during the elections um, a few years ago. Um, there, there's a film about a young woman in Africa who is uh, a refugee and she's looking for her family after a lot of civil unrest. So there are filmmakers from as far away as Australia and as near as Georgia who have submitted films to the festival to discuss a, a wide variety of uh, civil and human rights topics. Yeah. So, and of course, iconic filmmaker and human rights activist Spike Lee. He's going to be receiving a Lifetime Achievement Award this year from your festival. Let, let's just hear a clip of him winning his Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar this year. 
My grandmother, Zimmy Sheldon Retha, who lived to be 100 years young, who was a Spelman College graduate, even though her mother was a slave. My grandma, who saved 50 years of Social Security checks to put her first grandchild, she called me Spiky Poo. She put me through Morehouse College and NYU grad film. Let's all mobilize. Let's all be on the right side of history. Make the moral choice between love versus hate. Let's do the right thing. You know I had to get that in. <laughs> do the right thing you're going to be screening the film do the right thing uh 1989 yes it must be 1989 1989 that's how it goes um so so obviously a, a proud moment for morehouse college to have their graduate spike lee but i'm wondering for you cores how how has spike you mentioned actually earlier other black filmmakers right, right, egypt right. how they'd influenced you but what was what does spike lee mean in the industry for a young black filmmaker oh wow that you can take a risk and you can take a <laughs> risk financially because you already know he's used credit cards or what have you just like robert townsend and you can take a risk in your art i mean even that little thing he does with the the camera, you know, I mean, the dolly move, right? The dolly move. Yes. Like you he even did it in uh, old boy. I mean, he's, yes. he's doing these things that lets you know, Hey, just go out and have fun. And don't be so, it already has to go by what you learned in school. Just go out and have fun. And that's, I mean, that those risks are what make you great. Cause nobody remembers the person who didn't take a risk. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's an amazing filmmaker. Uh, Spike gave me advice early on. And it was some hardcore advice, and I never forgot it. Oh, you're really going to share it with us? You can't <laughs> dangle that no, in front of I us. I don't want <laughs> to share that on the air. But, <laughs> but I, it really did help me. And I think um, the thing about Spike Lee is he's a, a visionary. Um, he's just a very talented person. And I think as a filmmaker, it was the first time, at least for me, I recognized a black man who was an artist it, in terms of film, you know, you had looked at Steven Spielberg and you had seen, you know, I don't know, pick somebody. I mean, Michael Mann, David Fincher, these other guys, but Spike Lee was is just as amazing, if, you know, not more in some degree. So, Do you think he, uh, you know, this was his first Oscar after how many years, how many nominations, five nominations, what, 30 years um, this year? Do you think... He paid for having a, a strong voice on issues. Yes. <laughs> Carrie, you're nodding. I'm nodding. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking about Do the Right Thing in particular. Um, just the whole montage of the different ethnic groups uh, calling each other the, the various... We, we can't even play that. We can't <laughs> even play that. <laughs> right. And uh, that, was, that was a huge risk. Yeah. Um, but... It, for me, it was inspiring because it was a brave move to use your craft to make such a strong point about racism. And, and things that and people actually the, racism say. Racism across the board, yes. Right, right, right. This is what we say behind closed doors or, you know, what the different ethnic groups say behind closed doors. It, he just put it on front street. He's like, here's what, what we're all saying about one another. And the fact that he used his craft to expose our prejudices that was i thought that was very brave and courageous and inspiring for me mm. 
somebody who's going to go to a film festival that is called the Human Rights Film Festival, <laughs> I would make the educated guess uh -huh. that that's going to be somebody who cares about human rights, that somebody who thinks that that's an important value. Are you really going to change minds? I mean, like... I think for me, as an, I was an, I've, been, I've been an educator for over 10 years, I mean, and, and now educating in film as a screenwriting teacher... I mean, from the college level, we started a program for for students. Uh, I shouldn't even say we. Nate started a program at Wiley College where they did great debaters. Um, we've had a cohort of kids that have gone through that program through the Nate Parker Foundation five five years. Those kids are being taught artivism, right? Those projects are going out. For me personally, with Fate, the film that I have, Fate, I know that that's something that is having an impact. Fate is imprisoned for $20 worth of marijuana. Um, we've gotten 30,000 signatures through Color for Change Foundation. Also based on a true story. It's also based on a true story. And But I've had, I've, I have people contact me. How can I help with this? How can I, you know, do something? Um, you know, I've seen it with Lou. I've had people who've come to me. It's a story of forgiveness. This woman came to me and she's like, I watched your movie. My son was murdered by this man who's getting out of prison. I want to tell you I can forgive him because of your film and I That's did not powerful. feel I wasn't able to carry that and understand that it was too much for me to, to feel like I was that impactful from a film uh, but it was definitely an honor and a privilege Kyra I just wondered clearly Morehouse is saying that human rights film can change minds just wondered if you had anything to pull so, in so Morehouse College's position is that yes films can absolutely change minds and hearts and that's what we're hoping to do with this festival, along with bringing together filmmakers, activists, people around the community to um, to learn and to exchange ideas, to gain better understanding about human rights and what they can do to possibly impact change. So. Kayra Walker, she is director of the Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival. Thank you so much. Thank you. And also, Egypt Robinson, thank you. Thank you. And congratulations. I appreciate it, appreciate it. And to you as well, Chorus. Thank you. Thank you for speaking with us. The Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival gets underway this Thursday in Atlanta. You can see a full schedule and also get a coupon code for the festival at gpbnews.org. And, you know, since we brought it up, we're just going to have to hear uh, Fight the Power from Public Enemy. <laughs> That's awesome. From used, used to great effect in the opening sequence of Spike Lee's film, Do the Right Thing. Coming up, Chef Pano Caratosa steps out of the kitchen and into our studio to dish out details on beating Bobby Flay and his new cookbook for modern Greek food. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Georgia has its share of celebrity chefs. A select few have emerged from high-stakes smackdowns with Food Network star Bobby Flay victorious. 
Yes, Pano Caratasos beat Bobby Flay. And he has a whole lot of other accomplishments and an amazing food tradition behind him. Like his father, also known locally as Chef Pano, he's carried those traditions to the South. And he's innovated on them as executive chef at Kima Restaurant in Atlanta. Well, now Chef Pano Jr. is extending his reach with a new cookbook and some staple ingredients for home cooks. And the book is called Modern Greek Cooking. Chef Pano, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So for people who don't watch the show, the 12 people left who don't watch this show, what is the premise of Beat Bobby Flay? How does it work? Beat Bobby Flay is an awesome show. You watch them every week. Two chefs go at it. And, and the uh, chefs come in with their own recipes, their like favorite recipes? You, ha- you have your signature dish in mind. And uh, before you go against Bobby, you have to go against another chef. And the winner of that round faces Bobby. And what happens is... Bobby has a secret ingredient. So on the show, uh, the secret ingredient was arugula. I won. What'd you make? I made an arugula coolie with a seven-minute egg. Mm-hmm. And then I made a, uh, a little shrimp and quinoa salad to go along with that. Uh, of course, garnished with more arugula. So I made arugula the star. The, uh, the shrimp gave you a little bit of sweetness to go with the bitterness of the arugula. That's one of my favorite ingredients to use. I was going to say, you know your way from arugula. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, looking back at the show, I saw that the uh, the chef I was going against wasn't thrilled about arugula, and there I am. I'm thrilled about arugula. So I guess that gave me the edge. I went on. I faced Bobby, and uh, we competed over my signature dish, which was uh, lamb pie. Lamb pie. Yes. Okay. So, now, where'd you learn how to make lamb pie? <laughs> so lamb pie is from a Greek... A pastry dish called uh, exohiko, and that's usually when you take um, meats that you've braised or roasted. Of course, in Greece, we do a lot of, you know, roasted lamb whole off uh, off the rotisserie, and um, you pull it, you crisp it up in olive oil, and then you fold in caramelized onions, garlic, of course, some Greek oregano, thyme. And uh, extra virgin olive oil. So now, does Bobby try to make this same dish that you're making? So he can do any kind of form of lamb pie that he wants to. Mm-hmm. And he chooses to go with a Moroccan-style lamb pot pie, is what he called it. And uh, it looked like he made a very flavorful dish. Um, I think his the judges didn't like the fact that his puff pastry was so small that it didn't represent a pie. Had he spread it over his vessel and baked it like a traditional pot pie, I think he would have had a better chance. But um, the meat inside of my lamb pie was extremely tender. It was juicy. And uh, overall, his was tough. So I think that's what what won it for me. So did you think, you know, did you ever for a moment doubt yourself that you were going to make the slamminest lamb pie? <laughs> I was prepared. It's funny because in the show, when you watch it, they ask, uh, they ask me, you know, have you, how many, you know, how many times have you prepared or have you prepared this? And of course, my answer is a thousand times. And you see Bobby's expression afterwards. Didn't like hearing that. So, but uh, yeah, I was extremely confident. So what was it like to hear your name announced as the winner? It was awesome. Yeah. You never know on this show. Uh, he he wins, especially when he goes against savory cooks. I've watched plenty of shows prior to going up, uh, up to New York to compete, 
and um, he wins. He wins. He wins almost all of them. And um, so you just don't know, you know, which way those judges are going to go. So that was all. It was awesome to hear. Well, I want to hear a little bit about your origin of cooking story because you didn't. You didn't grow. Your early years were not in Greece nor Atlanta, but in Missouri <laughs> of all That's places. Right. Was there a big Greek community there? No, there was not. Um, my grandparents all came to the United States through Ellis Island. They settled down in Savannah. My parents are about seven years apart, so they didn't really get to know each other until my father came back from the Navy. And uh, he's a chef. So, Coloring Institute yes, of America. Yes, a, a legendary Bride. chef. Yes. And uh, so, the Greek community in Savannah is strong. And um, Greek community in Atlanta is very strong. But in Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri, not really. <laughs> yeah, I'm just uh, as an aside, do you ever watch that show Ozarks, which is set kind of in Lake of the Ozarks? <laughs> I watched a couple shows, uh-huh. but yeah, I haven't and had a filmed chance. at Stone Mountain of all places. I know it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, so but when you did move to Atlanta, were you, were you eight years old, something like that, yes. seven or eight years old, and your grandmother was then there. She moved to Atlanta with you, closer to home. Is is that? I, I imagine you as this kid, you know, from your book. Like being the kid in the kitchen, hanging around while your grandmother's cooking. Your yaya. That's right. That's right, my yaya. So I do. I mentioned the story in the book, and um, when I would come home from school with my brother and my sister, I would always go left towards the kitchen. They would say hi and kind of go right. Right meant they were going into the family room or downstairs in the terrace level. And um, I always found myself finding, you know, what is it that she's cooking? She's always cooking. So my curiosity was there. And I was uh, tasting her sauces and tasting her her stews. Uh, She would do anything from, you know, green beans and potatoes with tomatoes to a uh, beautiful braised lamb shank with orzo pasta so she was always cooking. And um, for me, that's where I wanted to be when I came home from school. And then, you know, I'd find my way somewhere else and um, journey off. Well, and your father, he went on to open Panos and Pauls, and you went on to major in the hospitality industry. And then a very, very distinguished pedigree in cooking, uh, working with Thomas Keller, Jean-Georges, uh, and also Eric Repair at Le, Le Bernardin in, yes. in New York City. These are great, amazing chefs. So what is it that gave you the oomph? You know, why were you the one who was chosen? <laughs> well, I started cooking for my dad at age 15. And prior to that, I was in sports. So the oomph came from the fact that I just loved cooking. I... um Loved my high school years. It was football in the fall, wrestling in the winter, uh, track in the spring, cooking in the summer. And then that rotation, you know, one more time, one more time, one more time. That's what got me going. I wanted to go directly to culinary school out of high school. But uh, both my parents wanted me to go to college. And I'm I'm happy I did. Um, I started out at FSU, got my associate's degree. Then I went to Florida International, got my hospitality management degree. And uh, and then finally, Culinary Institute of America. Yeah. So by the time I finished Culinary Institute of America, I am close to about 24, 25. I've been cooking for nine, 10 years. And I was able to secure a position at La Bernadette. Amazing. And, and, uh, and what, a, what a guy he is. I read his um, yeah. memoir. <laughs> and, and he just sounds like, I mean, let's say 
let's just acknowledge, compared to Thomas Keller, has a better reputation for, for the way that he treats his people in his kitchen. He, um, all three chefs that I work for, um, really treated everyone great. I will say that. Well, I'm glad um, to hear it. You know, Chef Eric just is more vocal about that being sort of like um, a daily practice for him. And, um, yeah, so I spent, uh, you know, two and a half years. I cooked at uh, all his positions. I finished as a tournant. Uh, Which a, means what? Tournant is basically someone who has cooked all the positions and, uh, from a scheduling standpoint, can be used to fill in positions uh, on people's days off. because can everyone, do anything. Yeah, because most people work five days a week, and so there's always that sixth day of work. So um, after I worked for uh, Eric Parrott, I uh, started my job search. I gave Eric a good six-month notice, and um, he sort of uh, pushed me towards uh, Jean-Georges. And luckily he did, because I loved my experience with Jean-Georges. I uh, worked for him almost two years and uh, met a lot of great uh, chefs that were sous chefs, that were cooks. Uh, Wiley Dufresne, Gabrielle Kunther, um, great names in the industry today, Eric Johnson, and um, had a blast. And then it was, uh, it was, you know, another choice for me, you know, to move on and try another restaurant. I, I, I interviewed with Danielle Baloud, I interviewed with Thomas Keller, and um, the sort of uh, idea and thought of moving out to California, working for Thomas Keller, won me over. And uh, wound up working over at the French Laundry. This is uh, such a distinguished career. But then by this time, you're what? How old are you? 29, I'm like 29. 30. Yeah, I'm 29. So you were talking about being an athlete at the same time as learning how to cook. Yes. And I, that must be of great benefit. You know, Huge the kind benefit. of endurance that you have as somebody who's athletically fit, because it is a really punishing job in some ways. It is. Being an athlete and... Being on team sports like uh, football, baseball, and then doing single sports like wrestling where it's all up to you and there's no excuses for anything uh, as far as a win or a loss goes. So I learned a lot from my coaches and, you know, drive, push. Um, it was very important. You know, sports were huge. And um, I did all of it, though, because I wanted to come back to Bucket Life Restaurant Group. And I wanted my dad to hire me. Oh. Uh, I have a lot of respect <laughs> so for the... you worked for these top, <laughs> yeah. fantastic like, chefs, and you're like, Dad, it's time to I hire was, me. I was really uh, trying to secure my, uh, my <laughs> job. And it basically, you know, I, I have, I've always had the most utmost respect for all the chefs of Bucket Life Restaurant Group. And I put them on a pedestal. So at the end of the day, I, I said to myself, you know, I've got to go work for some of the best chefs I can possibly get into their, their kitchens in order to come back one day. And I did get that phone call. Um, I was working for Thomas. And my dad had signed the lease where Kima is. And uh, he actually called me up and said, you know, how much longer do you think you're going to be doing this? Uh, I need you to come home. I, I signed a lease uh, next to the Bucket Diner, um, and I want you to come home. I want you to be the chef and open up this restaurant. It's time to come back to the family. So that's what I wanted to hear. You know, I've got my dad up on the pedestals too. He's one of the legendary restaurateurs, and uh, he doesn't mess around. And so those were the words I wanted to hear. And I felt like, okay, you know what? I think I've built my resume up. I think I finally uh, attracted my dad to hire me. <laughs> what a 
a great story. Pano Caratasas is my guest. He's executive chef of Kima and corporate executive chef of Buckhead Life Restaurant Group. In August, his cooking beat Bobby Flay, and he's talking with me a little bit about that all in the studio. Well, that is something that's kind of, you know, not many family-owned restaurant groups are operating on this scale. I mean, we're talking about the restaurant group has West Atlanta Fish Market, Chops Lobster Bar, Pritchie, Bistro Nico, Corner Cafe, Buckhead Diner, and of course, Kima. So, and, and expanding into Florida, as I understand, why are you guys able to do it without, you know, killing each other like a lot of families <laughs> do? You know, we, uh, it, it all goes back to training. You know, my father likes to work with people who are talented, who are well-trained, uh, know what they're doing. And um, my brother, you know, and myself, did nothing but train extremely hard to be where we are in this company. Uh, we've had to earn every step of the way. And, um, you know, there's a respect level between all three of us that, um, you know, we, we know we can count on each other to um, help support the, the great chefs and general managers of our company. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about Greek food and the evolution in the U.S. Because... You know, we know that Chinese food here is, you know, there's no General Tso's chicken in China, right? You know, that there are American adaptations that have been made that have been presented as Greek food. Are there any misconceptions about Greek food here in the U.S., do you think? Absolutely. There are a lot of Greek restaurants that open up and they already have a mindset of the touristy sort of traps that you can get into. Right, and, you're going to have grape leaves, pita, heroes, that kind of thing? Well, it, it's it's maybe um, the fact that the food is, is cooked too far in advance, um, that it's uh, not using the high-end quality ingredients. So it's not a great representation of, of Greece. But how about for your book, you know, that you are putting this book out there to try and bring this food. Let's also acknowledge Mediterranean diet, thought to be the healthiest in the world, let's say globally, to home cooks. But they may have, you know, just supermarket ingredients or may not have access or let's say the time or energy to to, this is your life, your job. You find this quality food, just, you know, the quality of a great Greek yogurt, for example. So how are they going to translate these dishes? Well, you know, sourcing is what we do in the restaurant. And so we've made these sources available in the book. So everything can be as great as I make it at the restaurant. Are you teaching your kids to to cook and and introducing them to Greek culture in that way? I mean, would you like them to follow in your footsteps as you did? You know, I I just want them to find what they're passionate about. But yes, my son Pano is 18. He um, uh, cooked grill for me, hot apps for me at the restaurant. Same thing with my 15-year-old Lucas. Um, but he's been more um, garmage, hot apps, and uh, working in the kitchen. And then my daughter, Sophia, she's always been a magnet in the kitchen. So if I start to cook something, she just finds her way over there, kind of like I was with my yaya, and uh, starts helping. And um, we'll see where they go. You know, right now they're enjoying it. And uh, without any influence from me or conversations about what to study uh, in college, Pano is taking hospitality management. Mm-hmm. Go figure. Maybe they'll jump through enough hoops to get hired by their dad in the future. <laughs> That's right. You know, I said a, I said a high mark for them, so we'll see what they do. Pano Caritasas, thank you so much. Yes.
Thank you. Pano Caratasos, he's executive chef of Kima in Atlanta and corporate executive chef of Buckhead Life Restaurant Group. His new book is called Modern Greek Cooking. Now we're going to get out of the studio and hopefully into the kitchen and show me that lamb recipe. But for now, we're going to leave you with the song In Degrees by the band Foles. I also have some exciting projects cooking. Podcast host and journalist Malcolm Gladwell, the man who introduced the tipping point to the American lexicon, will be discussing his new book, Talking to Strangers, Thursday evening at the First Center for the Arts. On Saturday, I'll be in Shelman, Georgia for the Boudlow Bryant Festival. And on Sunday, MSNBC host Rachel Maddow will talk with me about her new book, Blowout. It is super timely. It's linking the oil and gas industry to Russian tampering with elections and the geopolitical tensions now going on in Ukraine. She'll be at the Fox Theater in Atlanta on Sunday, October 13th. Hope to see you at one of these events. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Hope you're getting better. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought. Second Thought.